uh, it's a great book. It's considered by many people to be one of the greatest books in the Bible, actually. William Barclay called it the Queen of the Epistles. And Ruth Paxton called it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. And John McKay, who was once president of Princeton Theological Seminary, back when those that taught there actually believed the Bible, but he gave testimony that he was converted at the age of 14 because of his reading of the book of Ephesians. And he called the book of Ephesians the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all Paul's writings. Now, that's a lot of praise, a lot of superlatives to describe a book. Can it live up to them? Well, I personally think it can, and I believe if we will prayerfully, carefully, and fully read and study the book of Ephesians, it can be a catalyst to change our lives. James Montgomery Boyce wrote in his preface to this, he had a republished commentary on Ephesians, and this is what he wrote. There has seldom been a greater need for sound doctrine of the church than today. There's a mass confusion about what the church is to be in our time. And he says that's especially true among so-called evangelical Christians. And Boyce went on to say, as I look at the church, I sense that our problem is that we are too man-centered. I think he's right, don't you? He says, we think of the church as being created and managed by us and for our need rather than by God and for God's glory. And he wrote, it is precisely at this point that Ephesians is so valuable. Ephesians is about the church. And boy said, Ephesians focuses on the church as God's new society. We are told who we are, how we came to be as we are, and what we shall be, and what we must do now in light of that destiny. Folks, Ephesians is a rich and a wonderful book. And as we begin our study today, I I just pray that we'll see right out of the box, right from the beginning, from the very first verses, that this is a powerful book that we cannot afford to ignore. Why don't you stand with me for a moment this morning, just a few minutes if you can. You don't have to stand if that's difficult. We're going to read the first three verses of Ephesians, the introduction to this great book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms 
and listen to this, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You may be seated. Now, when we go to introductions to anything, many people believe and find introductions are really not that necessary, not that important, and they think we ought to maybe just skip over to over them quickly and let's get on to that, that the greater teachings in the book. But in respect to Scripture, and I think especially with Ephesians, we'd make a profound mistake if we do this. Because in the salutations, in the greetings, and the preliminary remarks, we find in these verses some great truths that that uh, we de- <laughs> we really cannot do justice to all that's in this in the time we have this morning. I could spend a long time this morning talking about the author. You know the author, Paul. I could talk about his apostleship and how it was the will of God that he be an apostle. We could certainly expound for hours on Paul's standard greeting that we find in all of his letters as he wishes his readers grace and peace. We could also talk for some length about the church in Ephesus and the recipients of this letter. And uh, by the way, many believe that this, this letter was uh, not written particularly to the church in Ephesus, but to all the churches in Asia Minor. <clears throat> and they come to that conclusion because the early, early manuscripts of, uh, of, that they find of Ephesians, Ephesians is not mentioned in this part of the letter. And they think maybe it was added later because of the prominence of Ephesians and Paul's great connection with the Ephesus church. The letter would certainly have gone to Ephesians but it may not have been particularly directed at the Ephesus church. But this morning, I want us to focus on the description Paul gives of a Christian in the first three verses. I don't know if he does this intentionally or unintentionally, but what we find here is Paul gives a clear definition clear description and answer to the question, what is a Christian? Now, the very sad truth is that uh, many people in our day have little to no idea about what it really takes to make a person a Christian. And worse yet, a lot of people who think they're Christians are really confused. You know, if I were to ask 50 people on the street, What is a Christian? I tell you, we'd get so many different answers and conflicting answers and wrong and strange answers to that question. What is a Christian? Well, some people believe that a Christian is someone who's a member of a Christian church. That's pretty natural. Some say, I've been baptized. That makes me a Christian. Others would say that a Christian is someone who keeps the golden rule and lives rightly. That makes him a Christian. There are those who would say, I'm a Christian because I attend church and go to the Mass and partake in the sacraments. 
Well, others might say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that religious, really, and I don't attend church. But, Pastor, I try to live a good life, and that's what I, I try to do what is right. That makes me a Christian. And still others think because their parents were Christians, they're Christians, or because they were born in America, that that's enough as long as they identify themselves as Christians, and doing that makes them a Christian. What is a Christian? Think about it. I think we need to be careful to answer, to not answer that question from a sociological perspective or how our culture around us defines what a Christian is. I don't think you're going to get the right answer there. We also should not be content with just giving our personal opinion or defining a Christian from how we see ourselves. I think the only really essential way to answer that question is from how God sees it. And so we need to answer that question from the Bible in biblical terms. Do you personally know what a Christian is? So let's go back to the book of Ephesians now. Look more closely at these first three verses that I've already read. And in these verses we find Paul describing in different ways what a Christian is. Right from the beginning in the first verse. Paul uses three different words or phrases to describe a Christian. First of all, he addresses a letter to the saints. A Christian is a saint. Now, think about it. If someone were to call you a saint, most of you would probably resist it and you might say, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. Our problem with our being called a saint, I think, comes from, unfortunately, because this biblical word and designation for Christians has had its original meaning distorted. Roman Catholic Church requires people to go through a whole process called canonization before a person can be called a saint. And so to be declared a saint, a person must have been martyred, which is not a great way to get it, uh, or they must have lived an especially virtuous or good life and been able to do at least two miracles that can be officially verified. However, in the New Testament times, listen to me, all true believers in Jesus Christ were called saints. The word Christian, if you look it up, you'll only find it used three times in the New Testament to describe believers. Whereas saints was used 62 times to describe believers. The word translated as saints comes from the Greek word hagioi, which means set apart, separated, or separated. And the primary meaning of the word is, of hagioi is it has been set apart for God, for the sole use of God. It, whatever is hagioi belongs to God and 
And in, in the scripture we find that the items of the temple were hagioi, set apart for God and God's use. The Sabbath was hagioi. The temple itself was hagioi. And the people of God, the children of Israel, were hagioi, all of them set apart for God's use. Now, a problem comes because the word hagioi can also be translated as holy. But our being saints is not based on our moral goodness, our holiness. Now, we should try to be pure. We should aim to that kind of thing and holiness because we're set apart to God. But you or I being holy does not make us Christians, folks. It should be noted that Paul called the Christians in the early church at Corinth. Corinth was a mess. And he writes to this church and he he addresses all the people in that church as saints. Yet they, as you read through the book, you find they were guilty of all sorts of sinful practices. We're going to have Lord's Supper next Sunday. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. There was carnality and divisions among the members. They were involved in sexual sins and following worldly and secular wisdom. They were a mess, as I said. But but Paul called them saints because they had placed their faith in Christ. They had received Him as their Savior and they were therefore set apart for God. And they were saints. <laughs> I like what J. Vernon McGee wrote in his commentary. He said, there are only two kinds of people today. The saints and the ain'ts. If you're a saint, then you're not an ain't, he said. If you ain't an ain't, then you're a saint. And McGee goes on to say, now, there are some saints who are not being used of God. We know that. That's their fault. They are set apart for the use of God and for His service. And he said, saints should act saintly. It's true. But they are not saints because of the way they act. They're saints because of their position in Christ. They belong to Him to be used by Him. So folks, a Christian is a saint. You are a saint. We have St. Ron down here, and uh, St. Ty, St. Mark, all you guys, St. Kathy. We're saints, okay? Even St. Tony. How about that? He's a saint. A Christian is a saint. But not only that, secondly, a Christian is faithful. Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now what is the meaning of the faithful in this passage? I I think it's important to note right off the bat that the words of faithful in this particular context, is not a reference to the Ephesians being trustworthy or reliable, or even dependable. 
They were, but that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, they were people who were believing. They were people who had expressed and exercised faith in Jesus Christ. You need to note this right off the bat. A Christian, first of all, is a believer. And if one does not believe, then they are folks unbelievers. The question is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Now, what does a person have to believe about Jesus? <laughs> well, I think Peter expressed it well. When Jesus was had asked his disciples, you know, you're getting all sorts of uh, things said about who Jesus was. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they began to tell him all the different answers that people were giving. And then he turned to Peter. Peter got it right this time, folks. Peter said, he said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He answered, Jesus was the Messiah He was also the son of the living God. He was God himself. Peter was expressing clearly his belief in Christ. Now, belief in Christ is central, folks, to a person becoming a Christian. We must believe in him. In the Gospel of John, we find Jesus speaking. And Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he went on to say, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Him, notice it, believes. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And folks, real belief leads to real commitment. Becoming a Christian has been compared to a person getting married. When I was dating my future wife, Beverly, I could have told her, that I loved her, which I did. I could have also told her how much I believed in marriage and that marriage is a good thing. I could have bought, checked out a number of books on marriage and looked at magazines about weddings. Not only that, I could have studied all the laws governing marriage and collected and even memorized statistics on marriage. But folks, all these things wouldn't have made me marry. You see, for me to be married, I had to make a commitment. I had to take a step further than just saying I'd like to get married. I remember I got a marriage license. And then we had to stand before a minister, or you have to stand before a justice of the peace, but we stood before a minister. And we said, I do. 
A commitment had to be made and a relationship formed to make me married. And that commitment has not changed since we made it over 56 years ago. You know, I was pretty smart when I was young. I tell you, I can't tell you how blessed I am that she said, I do to me. She's been by my side all these years. There's a commitment that we make to each other that makes us married. And folks, there's a commitment we make to say, I believe in Jesus Christ that makes us Christians. What is a Christian? A Christian is a believer, one who said, I do, to Jesus Christ. One who's formed a personal relationship to Him, and one is committed to Him. Again, I want to ask you to think about your own life. Is there ever a time where you made that kind of commitment? Have you made that commitment? Until you're willing to do that, actually, you're not a Christian. And so we've seen so far, a Christian is a saint, a Christian is a believer, and thirdly, a Christian is someone who is in Christ. Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. William Barclay wrote, uh, Paul's friends were people who lived in Ephesus and in Christ. And he went on to say, every Christian has a human address and a divine address. He or she lives in a certain place in the world, but he or she also lives in Christ. So he was saying that every person has two addresses. You may live in Fountain Hills or Scottsdale or Mesa or Minnesota or Canada, wherever you may live. You have a human or physical address there. But if we are Christians, we also have a divine or spiritual address, and that address is in Christ. Now, this is an important phrase. This small phrase, in Christ Jesus, is central to the book of Ephesians. It's the keynote of this great book. This phrase, or its equivalents, such as, in Him, in Christ, in the Lord, occurs 39 times in the book of Ephesians. And here in the first chapter alone, it can be found at least nine times. If we're going to understand the book of Ephesians, we need to grasp the meaning of this phrase and see its importance. Chuck Swindoll said this phrase, this phrase is a profound theological truth often unnoticed by readers of the New Testament. He goes on to explain, by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, every believer is incorporated into Christ. That is, joined to Christ in one spiritual body, so what is true of Him is also true of us. 
For you to live in Christ means that you live and have your being in the one who is the source of your salvation. He is your power. He is your treasure. He is your riches and He is everything you need spiritually. Now this expression in Christ is sadly not an expression that is understood or used enough by us who are part of the Christian faith. We need to know what it means. If I were to ask someone, are you in business? I think they'd know what I mean. If I were to ask a young person, are you in college? They would know what I was asking. But if I were to ask many regular attendants in worship, are you in Christ? Many would give a blank or puzzled look or say, I don't know what you mean. You see, in Christ, or its equivalents, is one of the most common expressions and references to the Christian faith in the New Testament. Just in Paul's writings alone, the phrase, in Christ or in Him, can be found at least 164 times. And one of the most familiar references to this is found in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul writes, Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You see, for a person to be in Christ means that they will never be the same again. They have become a new creation. They have been born again and made entirely new from top to bottom. Now, when I put my faith in Christ, I was nine years old, nine-year-old boy. I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was in Christ and He was in me. And I could actually say Christ lives in me. I could say the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in the Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. But the converse is also true. I live in Christ. Let me give you an illustration. I think uh, we've got an illustration, a couple of circles, concentric circles. They're in your notes, that circles, the circles. And I'm going to have this image. It should be helpful, I think. Um, hope you can understand a bit better as you see this kind of concrete. What it means for you to be in Christ. If you look at that, you'll see Christ and you and all of you, every bit of you is in Christ and all of Christ is in you. We have an intimate relationship with Christ. I dwell. I live. I'm totally surrounded by Christ, filled with Christ. The atmosphere I, I breathe is Christ. 
One writer made this comparison. As the root in the soil, the branch in the vine, the fish in the sea, the bird in the air. So the place of the Christian is in Christ. We've been studying the book of Romans on Wednesday nights. And in the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul thought that you and I should know how this all works. And so he wrote, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And baptism by immersion is a wonderful illustration of what it means to be in Christ. He basically said when Christ was crucified, we were crucified with him. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose again, we rose with him and were resurrected with him. That's the picture of baptism by immersion. You can see it. We died. We were buried under the water. We were buried, symbolize that we were buried. And then we come out of the water. We rose in newness of life. John Stott wrote, to be in Christ is to be personally and and vitally united to Christ. As branches are to the vine and members to the body. Thereby also to Christ's people. For it's impossible to be a part of the body without being related to both the head and the members. You see, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ. One with him and his people. Let me just for a a second, there's one other thing I'd like for you to get out of this, what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ speaks powerfully, I think, to the security of the believer, the security of our salvation. When we're in Christ, you see that picture, we're totally surrounded by Christ. We're surrounded by Him. We're filled with Him. This is our position. And when people talk about losing their salvation, it's totally impossible for the true believer who is in Christ Jesus. We are in Him. We are always, we will always be eternally in Him, surrounded by Him. And it's impossible for us to be removed from this place in Him. Now, believe it or not, there's a lot more that could be said about what it means to be in Christ. But there's one more thing we need to see in these verses. We've been answering the question, what is a Christian? I've shared three. Christian is a saint. Christian is one who is faithful, one who believes. A Christian is one who is in Christ. And lastly, a Christian is blessed with every spiritual blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Three times, three times in this verse, Paul uses the Greek word 
eulogia, which means praise, fine speaking, blessing. We get our English word eulogy from this word. He starts, if you have the King James, blessed, blessed, or the NIV says praise. Blessed or praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. A Christian is one who is truly blessed. But you know, the problem is that uh, blessed or blessing been pretty much overused among Christians. We have, we have so little idea what it means to be biblically blessed. I think most of us, even as believers, think of being blessed as material, physical blessings. You know, houses and cars are good health. These may or may not be great blessings. Wealth and riches were not Paul's focus here. His focus, he says very clearly, spiritual blessings. When we become a believer, we enter into the sphere of great blessings. And all who are believers are blessed. Every person, without even any of us being left out, can be called blessed. Because we have all been given every single benefit we need to live the Christian life. Now what are some of these spiritual blessings? Could you name them? What are the blessings that we've been given? We'll find Paul... Naming many of them in this book, and a lot of them he mentions specifically in this first chapter. <laughs> in my second year studying Greek at Grand Canyon, my professor, Dr. Puckett, he was a character, a Mississippi guy, he decided that uh, we would study the book of Ephesians in that second year. And the Greek in Ephesians, folks, is not easy. It's not First John, not translating First John. First John was easy. That's what all beginning students start in. Dr. Puckett, that's Ron's teacher too. We all had Dr. Puckett. He was a character. And so our first assignment was to translate verses 1 and 2. No sweat, man. When I came back. That's good. I got that. No problem. The next class, Dr. Puckett said, your assignment for our next class is simply to translate the next sentence in Ephesians. We all began to joke about, man, what's wrong with Dr. Puckett? You know, is he getting easy on us? Man, just one sentence. However, when we begin to uh, start that assignment, we discovered that in the Greek text, in contrast to our English translations, the next sentence began here with verse 3 and went for 12 verses all the way through verse 14. One sentence. One long, complicated, difficult Greek sentence. But folks, when Paul, what we find here is when Paul began to praise God, when he began to talk about the blessings that he had been given and been given to all believers, he couldn't stop. He just kept on naming gifts and blessing after blessing. 
James wrote, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And so Paul names some of the gifts, some of the blessings that we have been given in Christ. He says, first of all, we've been chosen in Him. Then he says, we've been adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. He tells us He's given us His glorious grace. He's loved us. He's redeemed us from slavery. He's forgiven us. He's lavished us with grace upon grace. He has marked us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us a down payment and a guarantee of our great inheritance that is found in Christ. (laughs) And all of these blessings are ours in Christ. D. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, put it very well when he wrote, If you leave out the in Christ, you'll never have any blessings at all. Every blessing we enjoy as Christian people comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said you cannot be a Christian without being in Christ. Christ is the beginning as well as the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. There are no blessings for Christians Apart from Him. Are you a Christian? Then you are blessed. God has blessed us to be a Christian. And He is blessed, we are blessed by Him. He has blessed us right now, here. Now certainly heaven will be a great blessing one day. But he's not just talking about being blessed someday at the end of our lives in the heavenly home which will be ours. He's talking about us being blessed right now. J. Vernon McGee wrote, somebody says to me, have you had the second blessing? He says, second blessing? My friend, I'm working way up into the hundreds, in fact, up in the thousands. We're blessed, folks. A Christian who is one, is one who has been blessed and blessed and blessed. Are you a Christian? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you come to believe in Him? You know, sometimes people, sadly, are reluctant to put their faith in Christ. They, 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 they wrangle, they struggle, they resist becoming a Christian. Some of them will say, you know, I can't follow Christ. I have to give up too much to follow Him. Satan has filled hell with his, and his kingdom with that kind of lies. Folks, when we believe, when we become Christians, God showers us with His riches and spiritual blessings. For any person to turn down Christ and to cling to some cheap thrills or ugly sins is as foolish as a person turning down a sack of diamonds in order to hang on to a sack of marbles. What are you holding on to that you may think is more valuable 
than coming to faith in Christ Jesus. What are you holding on to? There's no sin. There's no habit. There's no supposed freedom or lifestyle that can ever surpass the blessings that God has graciously poured out on all those who only believe and receive Jesus Christ. Now this morning I'm asking you that question I've been asking all through the service. I want you to answer that personally today. Are you a Christian? If not, I encourage you to make that decision today to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to do that, Pastor Tony would love to talk to you. I would be thrilled to talk to you. And we're going to have someone through this door to my right, your left. Someone there that would also love to talk to you. And would tell you how you can receive Christ. And leave here today saying, I am a Christian. Christ now lives in me and I live in Him. We stand together this morning.